This is Roger Corman, and you're listening to Film Wax Radio. Hey, everybody, it's Adam Shartoff, your host of Film Wax Radio. It's Friday, April 17th, 2020. This is episode 608 of the podcast. Well, I took a week off. I think that is the first time I've done that in I don't know how many years with the show. Because, you know, even if you take a a week off in the podcasting world, you can prepare a show ahead of time. And so, I mean, you can schedule time off anytime you want. That's assuming you can anticipate you need the time or want the time off. And then schedule a podcast episode during that time when you're even away. You can do it. So uh, it wasn't planned taking off last week, but I had uh, the uh, unfortunate experience of losing my dad. My father, Robert Chartoff, passed away comfortably. He had a number of things wrong with him, and he did ultimately also test positive for COVID-19. However, it wasn't the leading cause, um, or even a major, I'm going to say, I'm going to even say it was probably even a major cause of uh, his, his, his death. I think he would have probably would have died without even having gotten the virus. So, yeah, I uh, got the call actually last Wednesday, and um, uh, there was just no way I was going <laughs> to post a podcast, but um, uh, nevertheless. And uh, this week wasn't, you know, normally I post on Thursdays, and uh, this week was also a difficult week, but, you know, it's a, it's a pleasure to do these shows, generally speaking. So that's why I figured I will. So I was running a little late, though, and I thought... Maybe I'll start posting the show, change the date to Fridays. We're, you know, the the idea of doing it Thursdays was that a lot of uh, films open on Fridays. So I don't know. What's going to happen? Where will we be with film openings going forward? Who even knows anymore what the future looks like in that regard? By the way, if you uh, look back, definitely on the website, I don't know about... I doubt on any the apps go back this far because I think my apps only uh, the apps rather only have back episodes of my show going back a hundred episodes, but you can go to the uh, website filmwaxradio.com and search Shartov, and actually uh, there's an episode with my dad where we did on 2018 on Father's Day uh, we did a he did the podcast, so not a hap- not the happiest guy even then. I mean, he was going through a difficult, very difficult number of years. My mother, as most everybody who listens to the show knows, uh, that she's got very advanced dementia. So that's taken quite a toll on my dad. You know, it's just what happens. And on the whole family. So uh, there's nothing really uh, more I can really say about my father. It hasn't quite sunk in anyway. So I'm going to not eulogize him at this point because I just can't. Uh, but 
listen to that episode if you're if you want to know about them. I mean, uh, I don't know. It's not, it, not necessarily something that most people would concern themselves with, uh, but it is on episode four hundred ninety of the of this podcast. Uh, this episode now is episode number six hundred and eight. Is a special episode. I'm happy to uh, have uh, provided it. It's uh, actually going to be dedicated to uh, the man out there in Toronto, who is my best friend. He is uh, having a birthday today, April 17th. So, Lawrence, this goes to you. Talk about friendship. I'll tell you, losing a parent, no way does it uh, make it at all confusing how to arrive at who your friends are. Not to say that that's, it's a contest of who reaches out now much, but it's the uh, sensitivity and the quality of communicating and a number of things. You just figure it out through major events like that. Having said that, I also do want to say, I mean, the outpouring, uh, for instance, of past podcast guests and just my friends from the film community, from... Uh, my old summer camp community, uh, family, extended family, old friends that I haven't seen in ages, friends of my parents I haven't seen in ages. You know, it's just people have been wonderful about it. Uh, I've never lost a parent before, so or an immediate family member. This is my first time losing an immediate family member. I've lost grandpa- all my grandparents and a few other close relatives, but not somebody, not a parent, not a sibling, thank goodness. Uh, this is, uh, show is dedicated to my dad, but this episode to you, Lori, because you've been such a great friend. Barry Sonnenfeld, how do you, how do you transition here? You just can't. <laughs> Barry Sonnenfeld, he is a character I didn't know because I, even though I've seen a lot of his films over the years, not only the movies he's directed, but those he's shot as well as maybe more, even if not more famous, is not as famous, maybe they're more famous. For instance, before Barry Sonnefeld even directed his first movie, he was a famous cinematographer. He shot the first three Coen Brother movies. So he shot Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing. And he also had time around that, within that scope of time to, to also shoot Throw Mama from the Train, Big, When Harry Met Sally, and misery. So that is pretty impressive. I mean, I don't think maybe throw mama from the train was that was that how big? It was probably successful. I don't remember. But then he was given a break. He was given a film to direct, and that first film, believe it or not, starting off with an one of the biggest hits of that year, 1991. I'm talking about the Adams Family. It was an enormous success. And then he followed up with Get Shorty and Men in Black, Men in Black 2 and 3. He's uh, written a book. It's called Barry Sonnenfeld Called Your Mother. And um, it is a, uh, it's just a tirelessly shocking series of events that this guy has uh, lived through. Unbelievable upbringing by a very neurotic Jewish parents. He was over, oh, I mean, coddled is to say the least of it. Uh, overprotective parents uh, to an insane degree. It's almost hard to imagine that this these aren't fictions that he's created, but they are not. And it is an entirely entertaining read. You know, Woody Allen's new book got yanked from Hachette, but this book, 
has not. And so fortunately, it is easy to find. I don't know what else to say about Barry Sonnenfeld, but he gave himself 100% during this interview, and we had a blast. Typically, a major director or filmmaker, you, if you're lucky, you'll get, I don't know, uh, you know, like a half hour. Once in a rare while, they just give you like, you know, with Mike Lee, what did I have, like an hour? I just got lucky. Hour, 15 minutes. So that is uh, remarkable. And it's it's exactly what you want when you have somebody who has been around, who knows everybody, who has been through so many, who's had so many great experiences to share and stories to share. Uh, I mean, we barely scratched the surface, of course, but it was a nevertheless a wonderful conversation. So this is it. Again, the name of the book, Barry Sonnefeld, Call Your Mother, Pick Up a Copy Anywhere, I Promise You. You will have a great time reading it if you're interested in all in his, his background. Uh, you'll hear anecdotes right from the book, as well, lots of stories that might actually really uh, entice you to buy the, the book. I don't know. but uh, So enjoy this conversation. We will be back in the next episode with the co-host of the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast. Frank Santo Padre is the next guest. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to take leave. Uh, there is no outro on the show. Just leave me a review on the, whatever app you're listening to this on, if you wouldn't mind, a star rating and a review. And follow us. We're you know on Facebook, uh, under Filmwax Radio, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. Please tell everybody and, and follow us on all these platforms. And um, we'll see you next time. This is Adam Shartoff, your host of Filmwax Radio. Here is cinematographer, director, author, Barry Sonnefeld here on FilmWise Radio. How are you? Good. How are you? Well, uh, you know, I, I could give you a surreal answer and, and bring everything down because <laughs> I, I don't know if I should tell you what's gone on in the last uh, 24 hours, but I actually uh, lost my father. Um, I immediately felt a pang of regret telling you my dad died yesterday. Well, you know, the horrible thing about me is whenever I hear a friend, whenever a friend tells me, that their parent died, I always say, is that a good or a bad thing? Which you're not. I read so, the book. <laughs> which you're not supposed to say. But uh, I remember e uh, hearing that the Cohen's mother died, and I called up Joel and Ethan and said, uh, "Hey, I'm really sorry your mom died." Unless it's a good thing. And <laughs> <laughs> no, never. But most people don't have that uh, either. The experience of it being a good thing, or balls to admit it if it is a good thing in fact well i'm very sorry for you if you would you. like me to be <laughs> good answer yeah <laughs> only in that he was not well and not you know it was not a great situation towards the end and and i i it's not like i feel relief but i i, I there is some relief in it um i mm. have a you know 
I just I, the idea of it going on and on for years is is a lot worse in my mind. So thank you that for that. I have a question regarding I you know my due diligence in anticipation of our conversation. One thing I did is I watched the 92nd Street Y conversation with you and uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Here's my question real quick, okay? Yeah. Did the 92nd Street Y accidentally invite Jerry Seinfeld (laughs) intending to invite you and then had to recover for their mistake because they invited Jerry Seinfeld instead of Barry Seinfeld and asked him to moderate? No. Actually, uh, uh, (laughs) what happened was uh, Jer- Jerry Seinfeld is my neighbor in Telluride. Uh, I live in Telluride, Colorado. And so the 92nd Street Y said that they would be willing to have me in the big room, which holds like 800 people, and yeah. have a book signing if I could get them a big enough name. So I, I actually, Jerry was here. It was over uh, the new Christmas, New Year's uh, vacation. I live here year-round jerry and his wife and kids show up for a couple weeks over the holidays to go skiing and stuff and i said to jerry hey would you do a q a with me at the y 92nd street y and he went yeah sure it was it's it's his old neighborhood right or a current neighborhood anyway like one of his current neighborhoods he must have a collection of neighborhoods yeah uh, he's on the west side He's uh, mm-hmm. but it is oh, right. That's on Lexington. You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it is in Manhattan, and uh, uh, he drove one of his new cars there, so he got to do that, and it was just surreal to be on stage with Jerry Seinfeld. And actually, when I walked in and I saw the poster, <laughs> I had top billing, so I was particularly oh. <laughs> uh, impressed with myself. Well, you did write the book. Yeah, but he is Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Yeah. You think or assume that most of the ticket buyers for that event were there for Jerry, is what you're saying. I would say that if I was being interviewed by someone other than Jerry, A, we would not have gotten that hall, and B, we would not have filled it. They were there for Jerry. It was a packed crowd, and they were very pleased. It was fun to watch that. that oh, was thanks. A lot of fun. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, it was very entertaining. And I saw you also at the. Uh, I also watched another one with you at the uh, uh, Goldman the Sachs. Goldman Sachs series. Yeah, the Goldman Sachs series. Thanks for reminding me. Which you know was surprised because I thought that you know they generally had on a certain type, but I I think I've I've seen that they've have historians. They've got a kind of an eclectic. A bunch of people that that uh, do the, that series, so maybe I'm wrong. It was the very, very first public speaking I did for this book, uh, and it was a lot of fun. There was a really good moderator. You know, so much depends. She was good. Yeah, she was good, and uh, uh, I had a good time there too. Uh, we didn't fill the place. Uh, uh, I didn't bring Jerry, so we didn't fill the place. But it was three quarters full on a you know weekday afternoon so i was i was happy with it it's funny because if you go to those things that i've been in the lobby selling books actually for a couple of for friends of mine and and uh they they race so fast back to their desks after those talks it's like they are so terrified of being away from their desks too long no no it's so true yeah right i was surprised (laughs) that like they the place just emptied out because maybe the market was down a tenth of a, a point yeah. in the or the Nikai average or something. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Well, 
I'm thrilled to death. And I, you know, one of the other things I wanted to mention to you, since we do have some time here, I can say these things. It's such a, a nice uh, relief from uh, the usual shorter conversation. But that when the publicist set this up, she said, Barry would prefer that you read the book or ellipse most of it. So I wrote this <laughs> and I and I wrote it back and I said, we well, see, this is what somebody like me is up against. All those people that obviously you come in contact who talk to you about whether it's the book or your one of your movies who hasn't even seen it or read it in this case. And I deal with that a lot. I get a lot of guests. Uh, this is a podcast where yeah. a lot of people that come on are filmmakers like yourself. And I often get that question. Have you seen the movie? And I'm like, Wow, I have my, you know, I have, this is what you're up against. But I often will be able to say, not only did I see that movie, but I saw all of your movies. I actually try to really honor this thing, you know, as much right. as I can. So, so I, I did read the book, and I read the whole thing. Is wow, thank you. Yeah. Oh, it was very. I mean, there. If you're those listening. And now I have one less listening because my father ah, died. Sorry, <laughs> but no. Uh, the uh, <laughs> is that uh, it's so entertaining. I mean, uh, there are some dark moments in it, but it is even those moments are couched in uh, a lot of humor. So, uh, was there any other way for you to write a book, uh, a memoir? Uh, no, truthfully, uh, I like to look at the world from a skewed point of view. You know, if you know. My the body of my work it's always been a little bit on the quirky side. I embrace quirky, you know, and uh, that's what I'm drawn to. So I knew that when I started this memoir, it was going to be funny. You know, it, what's weird about it is my intention was to write something that was much closer to a David Sedaris book, in that it would be you know twenty or thirty chapters that were that were only vaguely related to each other. You know, I feel like I know so much about David, yet his memoirs have never been chronological per se. But over the course of those books, you get to know his sisters and his parents and their quirks and North Carolina. So mm -hmm. I did not realize I was going to write such a, it's not exactly linear, but it, it tells a memoir kind of story as opposed to a bunch of essays. Mm -hmm. Well, you talk about in the in the book, I think a lot of creators of comedy about how the, it's important that, you know, when you're doing the scene to play it straight. So you're given this very unusual situation, but you the actor has to play the scene straight. You gave a couple of funny examples. There's a funny passage with Kevin about Kevin Klein. And then on the other side, there's Gene Hackman in another movie. But does that apply to a book? I hope I did. I hope that, you know, my goal, whether it's writing a book or directing a movie or TV show is I like it when the audience thinks they're smarter than I am. And that where they find the joke, it's why I like master shots more than close ups so that, you know, you can see action and reaction in the same shot. So when I wrote this book, you know, it's 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 funny, but it's kind of dry and sarcastic. And I want I want you to laugh instead of me saying to you, this is funny laugh here. Yeah, laugh yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think I my the tone in the book is similar to the tone in my visual work, which is 
trust the audience to find the joke. You come from the world. You come from cinematography because you did. You you bought a camera once, and then. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but a master shot would be when Harry and Sally, for instance, were sitting. And we're seeing them both at the table, right? Is that's what you mean by a master shot? That's like, right. Where, and, yes, where you where a wider shot where the audience gets to look around and find where the joke is. You know, the most perfect example of that is uh, in uh, his girl Friday. Uh, is it no? Sorry, bringing up baby. Right. Mm -hmm. You've got Carrie Grant in Catherine Hepburn's aunt's bathrobe because they were at Catherine Ance's house and she's calling him Mr. Bones, which isn't his name, right? And what's funny about the two shot is Catherine Hepburn is blabbering on about Mr. Bones and this and that. And Cary Grant, who is the most perfect reactor ever in movies, keeps trying to say something, but says nothing. And the audience gets to see both Catherine Hepburn being hilarious and and Grant doing nothing but just try to react to this. And the audience gets, if you ever cut to his close up, it wouldn't be as funny because you're saying to the audience, this is funny, as opposed to you, the audience saying, wow, this is hilarious. So yes, a, a master shot or wide shot is where you get to see the whole action in a single shot without editorially cutting around to close-ups. While we're on the subject, I have a question about that. Do you think there's ever an appropriate time to to cut to, let's say, a one-shot of, let's say there are two people, but to hide information from them and then reveal it by coming back out? Do you think, or do you think that's cheating? No, I, I you know, under the right hands with the right filmmakers, I don't think that's cheating. I think that's that I think that's fine to hold back information until you want the audience to know that information. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that's fine. I, th I I would allow that. But th <laughs> Thank you. But, yeah, I, yeah. I had that up. I was going to apply that to his film, a, a short film I was uh, about to to actually make, uh, but um, something happened and I got uh, de delayed recently. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're stuck, I suppose, at home uh, or choosing to stay inside and. I'll tell you the With truth, sweetie. Uh, sweetie and I, the wife, I call her Sweetie. Uh, we live in Telluride, Colorado. We're on sixty-two acres, and oh my tru Lord. truthfully, uh, although there's a weight, there's like those Charles Schultz drawings of pig pen, where there's always sort of stuff flying over his head, sort of the dirt. We have mm -hmm. this psychic weight of worrying about our children, worrying about the future worrying about our country. But other than that, we're doing exactly what we do every day, which is wake up, cook breakfast, take the dog for a walk, figure out what we're going to have for lunch, uh, you know, read, nap, and then cook dinner and then watch, you know, Rachel Maddow and whoever down in, uh, we have a great screening room. So uh, nothing has changed in our life at all, except this fear mm -hmm. hanging right. over us. So we're, we're fine. I gotcha. I guess I was going to talk about a little bit more about, more about some of the technique. I guess since you, I, I made a joke earlier that, you know, you bought, you, you decided that the best way to be call yourself a cameraman is just to simply own a camera. Yeah. Right. Right. This was, would have, of course, when you were a student, 
around the time you were a student, right? I had graduated NYU graduate film school and now needed to work as a cameraman. So I felt if I own a camera, and again, this is way before video. Now everyone owns a camera because you can buy a Canon sure. or a Sony. And, and But back then there was no video. So the only way to shoot films was either 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter. So I figured if I owned a camera and I bought a used one without feeling like a dilettante, I could say to people, oh, yeah, I'm a cameraman. Yeah, because um, that would you you would have made yourself somewhat in demand, potentially, right? S certainly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, because uh, they could make deals with me because they, uh, my deal was always I'll work really cheaply as long as you rent my camera. So they were they were saving money because the cost of me and the camera rental were less than the cost of me and actually having to go out and rent a camera. So it was a way for me to get work. And I would take any job if it meant shooting film. I would shoot a lot of yeah. talking heads for, uh, you know, Reeves teletape. And I would try different lighting techniques, uh, more more contrast, less contrast more bounce light so I could learn while shooting these uh, sort of industrials. Well, to be fair, they weren't all industrials, uh, although, I mean, I haven't seen them, so uh, <laughs> it's possible that your other work, early work, was <laughs> could be considered industrial. But you, if you go to your IMDb page, a lot of people may not know your earlier work. And I'm guessing, and I'm, I'm joking, but I'm referring to your, your porn work ah. <laughs> as a cameraman on, on, I don't know how many. Nine. It doesn't sound like a lot. Nine. There were a lot. Okay. Because um, they would do them a lot in one day, potentially, right? Yeah, we we shot nine feature-length pornos in nine days. I was very proud of that. Feature-length <laughs> sure. pornos. Yeah. So did, were you able to actually, since you didn't go to film school for that, oh, well, not at that point. You did go to NYU. I went to uh, no, graduate I, school. I did go to NYU uh, graduate film school, and that's where I discovered I was good as a cinematographer. Actually, okay. So would that have been prior to the, the those those pornos? Yes, it would yeah, right. be. Yeah. Uh, so so the what happened was I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I had graduated undergraduate school in political science, which is not anything I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and I went to film school for literally lack of anything better to do, but it meant for three years I wasn't going to have to look for a job. And then while at film school, I realized that I was a good cinematographer. In fact, my neighbor in the same apartment building who also went to film school was Bill Pope, who shot Sam Raimi's uh, Spider-Man movies, shot uh, the first three Matrix movies, uh, shot Men in Black 3. So we were the two cameramen at film school, and we both lived in the same building. That's an incredible coincidence. Yeah, um, yeah. And this was up in Washington Heights? Up, up well, I, I grew up in Washington Heights, but then I moved when I went to graduate film school. It was oh. in the East Village, so I lived... Oh, yeah, by then you were moved already yeah, to East Village. Uh, right. On 7th, between A and B. Yeah, and uh, we'll get to your mom because I know that caused complication, series of complications sure. in your relationship with her. You're moving out. 
Sure. Right? Yeah. I don't even, I, you know, it's like, it, you know, this is like a film podcast. It, it, so talking technique and the film side of things. But I, I want people to know it's very important when you, you can tell from the name of the book, which is Barry Sonnefeld, Call Your Mother. And we'll get to, I think that's always a great way to break the ice. In fact, when you start talking about the personal side of your life, because a great deal of this book is about your relationship with your parents and not just your film career. But I think you do especially a nice job by the way, telling both both stories at once, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but your mother is she's just uh, and your father. It's so hard to know how to begin asking questions or talking about them. But maybe just tell that anecdote so people do have an idea of and where the title comes from, so people buy the book. Uh, yeah. Well, you know. sure. You know, uh, and I'm I'm very happy to talk about film technique and all that stuff because. Uh, uh, I learned a lot and I have very specific ideas, but the title. I know. Of the book, and I yeah. want to do get back to that, especially because, you know, I, you before you did do those those pornos, but that had to contribute to your figuring out a lot as a, you know, uh, because you're, you know, I'm just I'm just guessing that's the case. Well, what it, what it made me realize is don't work on pornos. But in any case, right. uh, uh uh, you know, the book is called Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, because I was a very overprotected child. I went to a specialized high school called Music and Art. I was a French horn player. I was a senior in Music and Art. I was on a date with a girlfriend named Susan. And uh, it was 2.20 in the morning, and that time is very important, 2.20. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was warming up for the second time. It was the first peace concert. There had been Harry Belafonte and Peter, Paul and Mary and the cast of hair. And Jimmy was warming up for the second time, the first time he had stormed off the stage. And he was back on stage 2.20 in the morning. And as he's about to start his set over the PA system came the announcement, Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother, which is pretty impressive. I always said that my mother had strength through weakness. The fact that she was able to get someone yeah. to, to answer the phone, to convince them that it was such an urgent thing that they needed to page me. So I, I immediately assumed my father was dead because why else would she have been able to convince them I needed paging? Right, so, makes sense. So by the time I get to the pay phone, and, and that's a mess because by standing up, I announced to my section, I am indeed Barry Sonnenfeld. So now, because you're at the garden, they start the chant of Barry, Barry, which is growing and growing. So, uh, yeah, so my father didn't die. It's just that I was supposed to be home at You two. left out that you were, you were in tears. You were really, really convinced, right? That uh, your dad I was, was sure was he dead. was dead, yeah, because I was, uh, so now I'm weeping. My mother is weeping on the phone because she thinks I'm dead. Uh, and it's, it was because it was 2.20 and I was supposed to be home at 2. So I said, mm -hmm. did they tell you the concert was still going on? Yes, but they couldn't say you were there. So that was my mother. Mm -hmm. In fact, to be, to be totally honest with you, what made me go to film school after graduating college and having no idea what I was going to do for a year, my mother said that, you know, you love still photography, you love writing, movies are just a bunch of still photographs put together, by the way, not true. Uh, 
and <laughs> and writing, you should go to film school and we'll pay for your your graduate program. They didn't. It was totally a pathological lie. But uh, so she was instrumental in me taking my still photography portfolio down to NYU Graduate Film School, getting accepted and then going there without really any interest in film at all. Zero. How do you uh, how do you describe your parents? Uh, was that going to be? Um, they're so um, complicated. Uh, they're such complicated people because, on one hand, they're so incredibly narcissistic. On the other hand, they obviously deeply, deeply care about their their son and support you. In and so it's very. You're getting. I don't know. Was that? Were you getting mixed? Did you feel like you were very confused by by your parents and getting mixed messages? Uh, I, I'm just trying to figure out. And also, can you talk about um, how was it really uh, very, very, uh, uh, what's the word, um, uh, intimidating to try to recreate them? Uh, that ha I mean, so people could really understand what monsters they were. Yeah, right. You know, uh, it was pretty, and like and yeah. like them at the same time. By the way, it was it was pretty easy. Uh, you know, uh, I have a good memory, and uh, you know they were narcissists. But uh, you know, at the what allowed me to be so mean to them while writing this book was near the end of the book. I redeemed them. I, I there's a 90th birthday party for my father, and yeah. everyone shows up, and everyone's saying how my dad, whose nickname was Sonny, and my mother, whose nickname was Kelly, she was dead at the time, but was still a great influence to people, how so many people talked about how they changed their life and how smart they were and giving and, speeches, and kind. Right, right. And they their were, tributes, yeah. Yeah, so they were just bad parents. But I, I admit at the end of the book in the chapter called Burying the Lead that they were good people. They were just bad parents. And that can happen. Yeah. There's no spoilers in this book, apparently, because you <laughs> gave away the ending. <laughs> I did give away the ending, yeah. Well, uh, it, it, it's worth the ride getting there it is there's there's i mean there's um so many inc really incredible anecdotes and uh very very uh amusing i mean honestly i could have probably read the whole book straight through great if i didn't have you know other <laughs> a life <laughs> and and yeah and things going wrong in it but uh and again it's called barry Sevenfall call your mother we heard that but Hendrix was able to finish that set. Correct? No, the Hendrix songs. did a song and did. a half and, and stormed off stage. And uh, he wasn't feeling it. He broke up his band uh, weeks later and was dead six months later. And uh, I blame mom for Hendrix's death. It's just that simple. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's warranted. Uh, so, <laughs> so you, okay, so you, you shot, so thank you for bringing that up because I kind of felt like if I continue talking to you without giving people the full sort of sense of the book, you know? And right. where a lot of the humor comes from your, your dysfunctional family. I yeah. mean, your family really invented the word dysfunction. It sounds Thank like you. or Thank you. expression dysfunctional family. <laughs> Very proud. You should get, you should get uh, at least, I think, someone, every time somebody uses the term. Um, <laughs> get a buck. So, all right. So you were making these pornos. Uh, other than realizing that you shouldn't make pornos because it is what people don't talk about is they're more interested in the visuals, obviously, and sometimes the sounds shall I dare say, oral aspects of right. pornos, right? In every sense of that word. But what about uh, the smells? I As Rob Reiner said in Spinal Tap. 
Rob Wait, Reiner. Yeah, what did he say? He said at the beginning, Marty, what was his name? Marty? DeBerkey. Uh, his character. DeBerkey, thank yeah. you. He says, uh, I want to try to, you know, he's talking about his film that you're about to see, and he wants to recreate the sights, the sounds, the smells. <laughs> That's of, funny. Of, of spi- the spinal tap, yeah. Uh, well, what I uh, learned, I, I claim that if, uh, that if porns were released in smell-o-vision, no one would ever go to a porn. It's just, the smells and are just horrible. I, uh, although, truthfully, what they would do is they would dub in different smells. They would dub in, like, vanilla <laughs> and cherry and all the things. Just like you, they dub in the sounds of, like, oh, baby and ooh. It's not, oh, like, it's not like that on the set, no. There would be, aromath- be an aromatherapy. That's right. That's, that's, that's right. To, to, to or a scratch smells. and sniff, you know. Scr- Oh, <laughs> scratch number three now. It would be a disaster. It really would. Yeah. yeah. Again, if somebody's out there and you're contemplating getting into the film, the porn world right now, especially uh, mm. uh, on the on the uh, behind the, the lens, I would only recommend you read the, the chapters <laughs> devoted to your porn, your porn years, because there's a few very, very uh, graphic, you know, graphic. Thank you. Scenes where I, I would give anyone pause. You know, it's the very first chapter I wrote. Uh, a really? De- a decade before I was ever going to write a book. I had no, I didn't think I was going to write a book. And one weekend I had nothing to do uh, about a decade ago. And I just wrote that chapter for fun, just for something to do. Because I, I wanted to see if I could be a writer. And I, I gave it to Sweetie, my wife. And... There's nothing better in life than seeing my wife laugh at something mm-hmm. I've done or, you know, driving in the car and saying something funny and making her laugh. So she read this chapter and she used to be an editor, a uh, journalist, and was in hysterics and was laughing. And it's it's a brutal chapter. It's not a chapter you would normally let your wife read ever. But I was just curious and she loved it. And that's and that's one of the three reasons I wrote the book was that I, through her, I realized I was capable of being a writer. Does she not laugh at your comedies? Oh, she does. No, she's a good laugher, but she's a tough laugh, too. She, you know, she's well, That's tough. what you want. Yeah, but that's what yeah. you want, because then you believe the laughs. But unlike, let's say, Suits at the studios you want somebody who's actually knows knows and understands comedies and you know uh, it's so funny you mention that because one of the one of the steps when you are doing a feature film for a studio is you have these uh recruited audience screenings and they're always tough because your movie's not finished and you're nervous and will they get the jokes and it's temporary sound but one of the things I always, I have many rules about those recruited audience screenings, which we can go into. But one of the rules is I never sit next to the suits. They're always in the back row. So A, the back row is a sinkhole for sound. So you rarely get a sense of the whole room and where the laughs are. And two, because you're so nervous and want the movie to do well, and I've always done comedies, they laugh too much. And I'm always mm-hmm. saying to them, hey, guys, I can't sit with you because you're going to laugh too much. And then I won't know where the real laughs are. So, so if, in other words, it's this this deep needed desire to for the movie to be funny for them to the degree where they're actually 
maybe they're not even aware that they're pushing it so much. That's right. And it's and it doesn't help me. And the whole purpose of having a recruited audience screening is to learn from it. And and if I can't know where the laughs are or if I don't know that I've cut a shot too short and I'm I'm cutting a laugh short because everyone stops laughing because they want to hear the next line and I need to open up the film at that moment, another half second or something. If I'm sitting with all those suits laughing, I'll open up the film way too much because they're laughing at stuff that isn't funny. So you're not getting an accurate gauge. That's I right. See, right. That's right. This is like goes back to the Marx Brothers, right? Where they would uh, they did all those they did a lot those well at least a number of their movies were actually adapted from their vaudeville sh- shows. So they knew where the laughs were, and they knew the pretty much the big laughs versus let's say the less big laughs. They were all right. laughs because it was right. the Marx Brothers. But so when they made the movies, they knew, you know, what to, how to what pace they were it. Doing. Yeah, how to pace it. Well, you know, I always feel that a small laugh is worse than no laugh. So any small laughs, I'll try to cut out of the movie if I can. Uh, you know, uh, I'm very strict. I'm very uh, uh, down on my own work. I don't fall in love with it. I've only directed one movie longer than 90 minutes. And that was... Really? Yeah, That I don't think movies should be longer than 90 minutes. I remember be, watching the Titanic... And when intermission came on the Titanic, I looked at my watch and I said, oh, my God, Men in Black is just ending. And this movie's <laughs> at the intermission. But uh, the only movie longer than 90 minutes that I've uh, directed was Get Shorty. And that's because the script was 20 pages longer than a typical comedy. It was 140 pages. Most comedies are 120 or less. Was that true for, let's say, Howard Hawks for, let's say, some of the screwball comedies where the dialogue was, like, really snappy? Absolutely. Those movies are probably between 80 and 90. And by the way, uh, most when when studios look at a script to budget it and stuff, they see how many pages a movie is, a script is, and they, they assume that a script is one minute a page. I directed 45 seconds a page. I don't believe in establishing shots if i have an establishing shot you're going to hear dialogue taking place over it i'm just not going to have a silent establishing shot when two people are talking after every take the only direction i give an actor is okay can we just do it a lot faster my theory is if actors talk fast enough they can't act I'm taking away their ability to act. And I love... Yeah, very good. And I yeah. hate seeing acting. I hate seeing acting. And, I, yeah. and, and so by them talking fast, they don't have those moments to emote or think or react. It's all like that. I always said... Well, yeah, yeah, go on. No, no, no. Please. You always said what? Oh, I, I loved uh, the five, is it five seasons of Breaking Bad. Or six. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say it's five. I always said I loved those five seasons, and I could have done exactly the same show in one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that okay? I get the point. No reason to argue it. What is the same thing? I'm trying to think of the occasions where you worked with children. I always feel like that for you in particular must be especially painful. You did have an exception on the Adams Family because you just worked with really obviously smart child actors which thank god we're at the age where that is now the uh 
the norm and not just hiring somebody for their looks. Like yeah, the, that is interesting how many great child actors there are right now. I mean, I just love Jojo Rabbit, and both those kids were mm, extraordinary, yeah. you know? Uh, well, on Adam's Family, I had Christina Ricci, who was not only incredibly great, but was the spokesperson for all the other actors, because uh, the other actors didn't like our first script and didn't like how it ended. And they literally, and, and Christina was 10 at the time, gathered together <laughs> and and then approached Scott Rudin and myself and Paul Rudnick and said, we're very unhappy with the ending and Christina will tell you all the reasons why. And Christina mm -hmm. proceeded to talk to us like we were contemporaries and she was right. And we changed the entire ending of the movie because Christina was so articulate. And, But, you know, I had three years recently working with two great uh, child actors on the three seasons of a series of unfortunate events for Netflix. And the way I talk to them is the same way I talk to adults. I treat them just like adults. I don't talk down to them. I use big words or as big as I have in my vocabulary. I was going to say, <laughs> and, use, some to, use some now. I'm waiting. <laughs> uh, verisimilitude. How's that? That's okay, good very one. good. And detritus. I like detritus a lot as well. Oh, I love that word. That's yeah. You've got some good words. You do. Well, thanks. I just, uh, I didn't I'm sure know the you kids would. <laughs> <laughs> I just mispronounced them, but I know them. <laughs> yeah, so I, I talk to them the same way, which is I either say, uh, guys, just you got to be a lot faster, say the lines a lot faster, or here's another trick I do. I'll come up to a group of actors. Let's say there are two actors in a scene. I'll call cut. I'll go up to them and I'll say, one of you was really good. And then I'll say, let's let's try it again. And. Uh -huh. Both of them assume the other one is the one that's really good, and they'll just try harder. That's a technique. That's a technique, yeah. What if there is a group of children, you're in a rush, you ha you, someone you love dearly is, yes. uh, let's say, <laughs> in the hospital. I don't right. Know, and, you're in, and you've got a group of kids, and they have to do something like cry. Now, I, I, as, like, in, in uni like at the same time, so what are you going to do? You've got to get out of there, and you only have minutes. I just pulling this out of my. <laughs> you're referring to a very specific situation that was one of the worst moments in my directing life, and I'll tell you about it. On the first Adams Family, uh, the Adams Family are kicked out, and Morticia gets a job teaching pre-K children, right? And she's reading them Hansel and Gretel from the point of view of the the witch <laughs> who gets put in the oven, and Angelica says. How do you think that would feel, children? All right, so I'm trying to get done in time because A, kids can only be on set a certain amount of time. B, I'm trying to make the red eye to get back to New York because my wife is about to have an operation and we think it could be serious. It turns out it wasn't, thank God. But I do that, I do Angelica's stuff, she's great. Now I turn around on the kids and I just say, kids, uh, look sad. Roll camera, look sad, look happy, look disturbed, look worried, mm -hmm. cut. We've got it. And I'm ready to go. And Scott Rudin, the both annoying and brilliant and wonderful uh, producer, calls me over. He's been sitting at the monitor and says, you don't have it. 
And I go, well, what do you mean, Scott? It, we can go out on Angelica, we'll be fine. He goes, no, no, you've got to make those kids cry. And I go, oh, come on, Scott, I'm supposed to make those kids cry? How am I supposed to do that? And Scott says, you're the director, not me, make them cry, or you don't have a scene. Okay, well, you know, he's right, unfortunately. So I go back to the two camera, we had two cameras that day, because uh, normally I just shoot it with one camera, but we had two to get different reactions to the kids at the same time. That should, should hypothetically take half the time then, but go ahead. Uh, not really, because yes, it could, but you're, you're constantly compromising lighting or the right angle because the other camera's in the same shot. So okay. there are many reasons not to use two cameras, but on a day like that, it makes sense to use two because you, you don't know when you're going to miss a good reaction from a kid. So I say to both camera guys, listen, roll camera. I'm not going to slate it. Just roll the cameras and... When the kids start to cry, make sure you get good close-ups of each kid before you pan off to another kid. I want to be able to use each kid crying separately. And the camera says, guy says, you're going to make them cry. Uh, and we'll talk about the silent schmuck right here. Yeah, it's on my list. Uh, the silent schmuck is when someone is calling you a schmuck silently by saying, like, you're going to make them cry. Schmuck, the schmuck is implied, or really? Right. It's like a silent um, K, in other words, or right. uh, in <laughs> a word, or something like that. It's a silent schmuck. I got it. Silent schmuck, or, or really schmuck. Schmuck is implied, inferred, uh, or implied. So anyway, um, I said, yes, I'm going to make them cry. Just roll the cameras. I go up to all the kids. There's about 15, and they're all blondes, because we thought it would be funnier if Angelica, who's so dark, had these 15 cute blonde kids, and I say to them, kids, you did great. The only thing we have to do now is to give you your vaccination, and then shots, shots. your shot, and then we're done. <laughs> and this curly blonde-haired, curly cute kid says, oh, he's just making that up. And I said to the curly smart-ass kid, I said, no, 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 didn't your parents tell you? It's just a rule whenever you're on a movie set, you have to have a measles shot when you're done. It's just, it's not a big deal. It won't hurt that much. I'm hating myself. <laughs> and this kid starts to cry. And when he cries, because he was their ringleader, all the other 14 adorable blonde-haired kids start to cry. And it's an amazing scene because I got all these kids to really cry, except as soon as I called cut, one of the parents, this big burly guy, starts screaming at me and chase, runs into the room. Luckily, the classroom had a front door and a back door. I ran out the back door. He's chasing me down the hallway, calling me the worst names. I race through the door. I get into the Teamsters station wagon. He drives me to the airport. I get to New York just after my wife has had surgery. I find out everything's okay, but man, it was a horrible thing I did. Just horrible. Where are those kids now? We have to wonder. <laughs> uh, all, how, much, how much therapy do they require? I was going to say they're all sleeping on various streets somewhere. It's horrible. 
Okay, so and I is that that scene fortunate that stayed in the film that stayed yeah, in the movie. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. Yeah. It, Thank it, goodness too, because you know it, the idea that that might have gotten cut. Hey everybody, I'm sorry to interrupt this episode, but I did want to bring to your attention a brand new audiobook that just came out recently from Penguin Random House by recent podcast guest Sydney Lannison Stern. The book is called The Brothers Mankiewicz. Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics, and is the first dual portrait of the Mankiewicz brothers, Joe and Herman. Sidney has drawn from interviews, letters, diaries, and other documents for a behind-the-scenes look chronicling the lives, work, and relationships of these complex men. The time spans the entire history of the Hollywood studio system from the silent era of the 1920s, the golden age of the 1930s and 40s, all the way to its decline and demise in the 1950s and 60s. The book also goes behind the scenes of iconic films such as Citizen Kane, All About Eve, Guys and Dolls, and the notorious Cleopatra. The title is now available on audiobook, narrated by Jonathan Davis. Here's a brief clip from the book right now, and we'll lead right back into today's episode. On February 9th, 1993, the family of the late Joseph Leo Mankiewicz assembled in the Bedford, New York churchyard of St. Matthew's Episcopal Church to bid Joe farewell. It was an unlikely resting place for the avowed atheist son of Jewish immigrants, but like so much about Joe, it was complicated. Joe wanted to be buried next to his wife, Rosemary, and Rosemary was the daughter of a Church of England archdeacon. The fact that formally becoming Episcopalian made Joe officially not Jewish was just a side benefit. Besides, as their daughter Alex joked, her atheist father probably didn't mind a bit of insurance. Wherever he was going, Joe would not be lonely. He had always wanted to be buried with his cherished pipes and his favorite barking dog tobacco. Matches will not be necessary. The Brothers Mankiewicz is available wherever books are sold. Now back to the show. By the way, before it was occurring to me when we were talking about, you know, you're being in these uh, marketing screenings mm-hmm. to gauge audience reaction, right? Is it the kind of thing where they fill out the index cards at the end or the little uh, forms and they give their... Or is it really about f- finding the beat? So therefore, I guess I'm trying to get at is how much you support those types of screenings, how much you really think they're useful and helpful. Because I know in a lot of cases, it's, it's, it's typical where a filmmaker would be, is more offended by having to go through that rather than just sort of having final cut. Yes, but even when you have final cut, it's something to do. I'll tell you, it's a horrible evening. It's never fun. There are different reasons for doing it. The studio is often doing it to get rid of some scene they hate or or why, or they're also doing it for marketing reasons to find out, oh, women love this movie. Women over 25 love this movie. Men don't like the movie. Boys don't like it. Girl, so that they know who to market to. So there are good mm-hmm. reasons for it. But here's what I learned. And again, I had a great career as a cinematographer. Then I became a director on Adam's Family. And when we did Adam's Family, there was a guy named Joe Farrell who ran a group called the NRC, National mm-hmm. Research uh, Company. And they would, you know, you, you, you're you in an audience, 
and then they hand out all these slips of paper with questions. Who's your right. favorite character? When were you bored? Did you like the ending, et cetera, et cetera? Well, several things. One is those recruited audiences screenings are very helpful because you find out where the laughs are, where they're not. You hear them start to cough, shift in the seats. You realize where they're bored. All that is great, but then they hand out that paper. And that's where it all goes horribly wrong because they control that narrative. They ask those questions. So I always insisted, even as a first-time director, to add more questions because here was what happened. After their first recruited screening, Joe Farrell said to everyone at Paramount, too, mer too many very goods, not enough excellence. And I said, well, that's just because no one calls comedies excellent. Excellent is for important, they think it means important. So like 12 Years a Slave gets excellent, Adam's Family gets very good because it's the nature of the film. Joe said, absolutely not true. So the next recruited audience screening we had, I made them add two questions. Have you ever in your life seen a comedy you would rate as excellent? What was your favorite movie of the last six months? Oh, Barry, we don't need those questions. I know, I know, just put them down. Humor on, me. Humor me. One third of everyone at that screening said they had never in their lives seen a comedy they would rate as excellent. What was your favorite movie of the last six months? City Slickers. Comedy. So I proved to them my point. And also, I also make them a ask certain questions like, they would say like, why did you think of the ending? Did you like the ending? I would say, half the time the audience doesn't know if, what the ending is. Half the time, do you mean the tag, that comedy tag at the end, or do you mean the overall? So I would also make them ask an additional question was, did you like the ending or not? Or, and then I would say, what, what did you think the ending was? Oh, no one likes the tag. Well, thank God, because they love the ending. So you really, those, those things are good if you know how to ask the, the right questions. And because I was a political science major, in undergraduate school. Oh, sure. I knew that whoever decides what the questions, uh, the joke, the, the saying used to be, whoever decides what the rules of the game are decides who the winner is. And mm. they, they were writing the rules based on what they wanted to learn out of that screening. So I that turned it around and I, I always have very different questions than the ones they would normally ask. I did post uh, on Twitter before you know, we a few days ago, I just put, I gave the opportunity for people to send in questions, and uh, I did get one. <laughs> but this is a good because actually, it, one thing I really kn didn't don't know a lot about is again, I was more I'm always very aware of your directing because you have made some very famous movies, including, of course, as we said, the Adams Family movies and the Men in Black movies and Get Shorty, etc. But you have shot some of the most famous movies in the last the last few decades, including the first three Coen Brothers movies. That was, that was your entryway into being a, a, a real cinematographer. Right, right, or, right. Or, right. or leg, legitimate is the word I was going to spring up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, regarding that first day on the set of... 
Blood Simple. Blood Simple. Blood mm-hmm. Simple. That was your first day ever on a movie set, other than the the porn as a as a DP. Right. Uh, truly. As opposed to cameraman. I mean, for, as a cinematographer. Yeah, you know, I had shot those nine feature porns in nine days, but they didn't really count. You know, they were 16 millimeter. They were, you know, handheld. You know, they weren't they weren't narrative movies, really. But the first day on the set of Blood Simple was the first day that Joel, Ethan or I had ever been on a movie set uh, in our real roles. And I always tell people and partly it was because I bought that 16 millimeter camera uh, years ago, so I could call myself a cameraman. Decide what you want to be and do it. I never worked my way up. I was never a camera assistant or a camera operator or a loader. Uh, Joel was never, you know, an assistant director and then a producer. Ethan, I mean, we just declared who we were and did it. And it's funny because, uh, before we started, we were talking about uh, Jerry Seinfeld and myself at the 92nd Street Y, and someone asked Jerry, what's his writing process and how you how do you become a, a writer? It's a great answer. And I love Jerry's answer, which was... That's great. Get a pad and get a pen and sit there, and then you're a writer. Don't, don't look at the internet. Don't do anything right. else. Right. And just right. And I just right. love that answer. It was so it was, real. It, it, I'm going I'm to go a little further with uh, how he described it because it's important. It's about what you don't do. It's about what you're not doing, which right. makes you a writer. If you sit down with a pad and that pen that you described and you turn everything else off, you, you know, no distractions, turn the phone off, everything, and you don't even write a word, you ha- will have written that day. That's right. I'm not, didn't you love that response? I did. Love, it was great. It I was learned. Great. I, I, I never liked the guy, but I respected him at that first moment. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, I, I, love, I, I'm, I actually I'm, love the guy. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I, I grew up in New York. I'm you know, Jewish. Uh, but no, I mean, I think that that really crystallized so much. It was a brilliant way to couch that. It was just really wonderful, that moment. So what we did is, in the same way, we declared ourselves cameraman producer and 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 director and and it worked and uh i i think it's i i believe that you should decide what you want to do and it's one of the good things my parents did give me my mother wanted me to be some sort of in the arts she didn't say be a doctor or a lawyer or anything you know traditionally jewish middle class and my father always said to me don't don't figure out what your job should be. Decide what will make you happy, and you'll find a way to make it living doing it. Which is like shocking that someone would tell that to a child, you know, in a lower middle class family. And it and I took it to heart. Where did he get that from? <clears throat> you know, I don't know where anyone gets anything from. He was one of seven. His dad died when he was like seven or eight or nine years old he was Mm, mm. he grew up orthodox but never really you know uh lived that lifestyle or at least not when you know i was born but i don't know where he got it from except that he was always an optimist 
which made no sense. Uh, you know, we rarely had electricity or paid the rent, but he was always an optimist and always thought that things were going to work out. And, uh, and I guess I got that from him. And I, I'm always saying to my daughter, she should be a director because she's got a lot of opinions and she's pushy. And all directing is, is having opinions about everything. And it's that accumulation of opinions that create tone, style, etc. But you have to have an opinion about everything, even if you don't care. You got to say the red one. Well, that's an important, right, the red one, meaning that they're going to give you the blue one or the red one, which am I wearing? And then you, that you're fulfilling a, a huge need or, you know, by sit, just being the guy that makes the decision like that, as small a decision as it is, or meaningless in some cases. That's right. And what they don't want to hear is, oh, it doesn't matter, you choose. And so, right. and all you do is answer thousands of questions of a day. Some are important some you think aren't. Just like when you say the red one, you know, the prop guy showed you a green folder and a red folder and you say the red one and then you get on the set three months later and you have put that actress in a red dress and now you can't see the folder because it's red on red and then you go to the prop guy and you go, hey, remember three months ago when I said the red one and the prop guy goes, don't worry, I still have the green one on the truck. I'll bring it out, boss. What you don't do is say, hey, prop guy, why, why is she with that red folder? I told you the green folder. But if, if, you, if you feign stupidity, people will come to your rescue. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, no, it's true. Always, I believe you. I always just... surround yourself with people better than you are. That's why I work with Bo Welch the best production designer there is. I work with great cameramen. I, I, I'm going to get all the credit anyway. So surround yourself with people it's, that are your name really is good. above the title. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, talk about your relationship where this became very tricky, or maybe you just learned a lot out of that experience that you're able to talk about now. But your relationship with Penny Marshall, how tricky that was, because she uh, thought that you weren't very good. Yeah, she and by now it, you had already it. shot quite a few. You had shot quite a few films by now, right? But she was making big. Yeah, I was uh, starring hired, Robert De Niro. Uh, I was I was <laughs> hired on Big to be the cameraman starring Robert De Niro. That's correct. <laughs> and about uh, <clears throat> and a week into pre-production, I got a call from a guy at Orion saying, "I want you to meet Danny DeVito because I want you to shoot." Uh, throw Mama from the train for Danny. Before that, I had already shot, uh, you know, Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and a movie that, although I don't have cameraman credit on, it was called Three O'Clock High. I was the uh, cameraman on, but I wasn't in the union, so they gave me lighting consultant credit or something like that. But So I was already established a little bit as a cameraman. And I said, well, Saul, uh, this guy was Saul, I can't, I shouldn't meet Danny because I'm, I'm on Big. And Saul said, oh, no, they're going to shut Big down. Uh, Barry Diller doesn't want De Niro. He wants Tom Hanks. They're going to shut it down and wait for Hanks. And I said, well, Saul, that's not going to happen. I'm, on, I'm in pre-production. No one's told me this. He said, no, it's going to happen. So I met Danny. 
It's funny because I've always been a very wide angle guy. I love wide angle. I think right. wide angle is funny. And we, we went to a Japanese restaurant and Danny said, hey, Ba, if we work together, can we use those lenses with lots of millimeters? And I said, <laughs> lots of millimeters, Danny? And he said, yeah, you know, the ones with lots of them. And I said, telephoto lens? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, sure. I knew we'd use wide angle, but I, I thought I would say, yeah, Again, sure. humoring him. Yeah. Humoring him. The next day, I'm at work, and I say to the Teamster captain, because what you learn in the film industry is the Teamsters, the drivers, know everything first. They know who's going to get fired. Somehow they know everything. Right. And I said to the Teamster captain, hey, are... Have you heard anything about shutting down and waiting for Hanks? And the team captain said, oh, yeah, sure, Ba. Uh, Bobby Greenhouse going to announce it later in this week. But it's happening. Dylan doesn't want De Niro. The team captain knew all of this stuff. We shot down. I go. I shoot throw Mama from the train. Penny knows Danny because, you know, the whole Jim Brooks TV. world, TV right. world. Now, Jim Brooks Universe, I think it's called. Yeah, Jim Brooks Universe. (laughs) Now I'm on the set of Big. I love working with Hanks. He's fantastic. We become good friends. But Penny, Penny just doesn't understand what a camera can and can't do. She's very funny as a comedian and knows how to direct actors and create funny situations. But doesn't have a visual style and didn't really understand that the camera can not only be a recording device, but actually a storytelling device. Mm. So she never understood where I was putting the camera or why. And she didn't like to make decisions. And I love making decisions. I think it's what the job requires. So the Monday of the second week, we were in Teaneck, New Jersey. Penny with her dozen White Castle hamburgers and her carton of Marlboro cigarettes at 7 a.m. And she says to me, I tried to fire you this weekend, but they wouldn't let me. And I said, who wouldn't let you? Oh, they wouldn't let me. Danny says you're good, but I don't think so. I said, Penny, you should fire me if you don't want to work with me. She says, no, we'll get through it. And for 11 weeks, she just... She liked me as a person, you know, we'd have right, dinner, right, right. We'd, but she just oh. hated me as a cameraman. Mm-hmm. And Big looks great. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a classic, by the way. <laughs> <Please tell me. laughs> That's um, what I hear. I hear. Uh, so in terms of the Coen brothers, oh, by the way, I fell in love with the Coen, I came to the Coen brothers with, uh, uh, not Blood Simple, but... Uh, Raising Arizona? Fargo? No, Raising Arizona. I don't know what just happened to me. Okay. I just had a, a senior moment, apparently. <laughs> so anyway, um, but I, I was in Paris in 87. I may have already seen it once, but mm. I, I think this may have been my introduction. And I was with my friend, and we went, you know, there's movie theaters all over Paris. Right, I mean, right. or there were. I assume there still are. It's like the number one city for cinema, right? Right. So I go, and we're sitting in the theater, and Raising Arizona starts, and we're watching it, and I am just having the greatest time. 
And all of a sudden, this man behind me, a Frenchman, obviously, starts talking in my ear. He doesn't know I'm, I'm American, although I speak a little French. He's, then right. I wait a few minutes. He leans back over. Whatever he's saying, he's whispering. And I, I just look at my friend. I shrug. And, and then a, mo- a couple of minutes later, two hands go over my shoulders, and they push me down. Ah! He couldn't read the subtitles. Ah! <laughs> So I wasn't tall. <laughs> so I realized, you know, I don't mind slumping in my seat. After all, I don't need the subtitles. Right, so right, right. You know, oh, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, I yeah. ended up seeing it a number of times in the movie theaters because it really uh, had a profound effect on me, that movie. And you're right, that in that movie, as in, let's say, many of your other works, the camera really does have a perspective. It does become part of the visual humor in the, in the storytelling. I, I like the way you put that before, because um, I don't know if a lot of people think about, like, why, why do you need a cinematographer if you have a cameraman, somebody right. just to turn the camera on? And maybe that's what Penny th- thought is what you're saying. Right? I, I think so in that, uh, you know, you talk about Raising Arizona, the, char- the camera is an actual character in that movie. Yeah, like you it, know? yeah the supermarket's a great example. Yeah, supermarket like, and going over a car, a fountain up a ladder through a window into Florence, Arizona's mouth. When she discovers, you know, uh, Nathan, Arizona missing. And I think it might be because I'm an only child. I don't think I could act, but I wanted everyone to pay attention to me. And again, that's where wide angle lenses come in, because wide angle lenses have an amazing energy. You can be three feet away from someone and on a 21 millimeter lens, see from their knees to their face. And in this very short move of maybe a a foot and a half dolly that takes one second, I can just see your eyes and your nose. So there's this amazing energy to wide angle because you go from wide to close up very quickly. If you're on a a lens with a lot of millimeters, you know, if you dolly 20 feet, you won't change your perspective very much if you're on a 200 millimeter lens because it's already compressing everything. So... For me, wide angle is a very energetic way of working. In fact, to toot my own horn, I think that Men in Black 3 in 3D is the best 3D movie ever shot because by by using those wide lenses... And by having the, the actors mm. in front of the screen, it's funny because Jim Cameron sort of reinvented 3D, right, and rebirthed it. But everything uh-huh. about his personality is the opposite. In fact, his 3D is all behind the screen. And he loves to get into bathospheres and go miles underground and look at the world through a small little window in his pressurized mm-hmm submarine and i'm the opposite jim is like all enclosed and i'm all open and with my arms open saying come on let's put on a show so my 3d is i think better than jim cameron 3d so i highly recommend if men in black 3 is ever shown again in 3d to check it out because it's fantastic in 3d thank you i because so many times where i've taken my son who is in the next room over there, isolating himself within the quarantine. Right. <laughs> He's quarantining within quarantine in his bedroom. But uh, uh, he prefers 2D. But right. I, you know, because uh, so many times. But I really appreciate your, your describing the filmmaker or, in, I guess, cinematographer, really, the personality 
versus, or maybe not versus, but in, in, in relationship with technique. Like as, you know, and how those two things are, the relationship of those two things, like that you're actually bringing your personality into it. Almost some of you are neuroses in a way, or like you described as being a lonely child. Yeah, no, I, I think that you can see my neuroses through my movies and also through even the movies directed by other people that I've shot. You know what's interesting to me is nowadays, I don't know how it works at film school, but when I was at film school, every roll of film, every 400 feet of film, which is 11 minutes, between the cost of the raw stock, developing it, uh, coding it, uh, transferring the sound to mag stock, it costs a fortune when you're film school. And therefore, we, we designed our movies very differently because we never shot full masters. You know, you know Penny would shoot a five minute scene with this big wide lens playing all five minutes, you know, of the master, people would walk out of frame, the camera would still run, they would come back in, and we do 15 takes of a master shot that you were only going to use either at the beginning or the end of the scene to establish location. You were never going to be on that shot when, when Elizabeth Perkins would say, I love you, you know you're going to be in close-up. And at film school, we would only shoot what we knew we needed. We'd never shoot masters. We designed every you're, you're shot. In, right. But right. now at film school, everyone shoots on video. And video doesn't cost anything. So it doesn't matter if you shoot one take or 15. You got to... It might, it might cost more in the editing post-production phase, possibly. <clears throat> but yeah, I agree. I know what you mean. So my question is, is, is the fact that we had economic challenges, did that help Joel and Ethan and I design those movies in a very different way? I mean, you look at Raising Arizona, there's every shot is telling a story and every shot is for a reason and there are no just boring shots, you know? Mm -hmm. But if we had gone to film school when the world was videotape, I'm not sure we'd have the same aesthetic where every shot was specific to that moment in the film. The third film, obviously, just for anybody listening, was Miller's Crossing that you shot for them or with them. Okay, so this guy is the only one I'm going to read, actually, because I haven't looked for any others, but Carlos Sandoval, what a great name, wrote, how was his, uh, Barry's experience on working with the Coens, particularly, using his, particularly his use of long lenses in Miller's Crossing? Right. You know, there are two kinds of movies, handsome movies and funny movies. Funny movies want wide-angle lenses, and handsome movies want tele movies uh, lenses with more millimeters. And um, it's interesting because uh, definitely uh, Miller's Crossing was not a wide-angle comedy movie. Right. And, uh, so I was using longer lenses, and... Uh, I tend to see things with wide-angle lenses, but that movie didn't want that. That movie required it to be a beautifully handsome movie. And if any movie that I shot should have gotten a nomination for cinematography, it should have been uh, Miller's Crossing. I'm, I'm, very, I'm proudest of that movie. It's not the one that has the wackiest camera moves or anything, but... Uh, 
it's I think it's really beautifully lit. And then Road to Perdition the next year gets uh, the Academy Award for basically doing what we did on uh, Miller's Crossing. But Connie Hall is a famous cameraman, and I I I was Conrad not Hall. yeah Conrad mm-hmm. Hall, and I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York. I mean, you look at Gordon Willis, one of the truly great cameramen who never won uh, an Academy Award. And he shot the Godfather movies and Annie Hall and Manhattan and all these amazing pennies from heaven. All these most beautiful movies. But he's uh, back then it was East Coast and West Coast. Dee Dee Allen never got an Academy Award and she was an East Coast uh, 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 editor. Uh, it was very different back then, and it was very sort of West Coast-centric. But you also, as a cinematographer, let's say you did a bunch more, and then you got your break with uh, The Addams Family mm-hmm. uh, when Scott Rudin right. took a chance on you, right? He thought you'd be right for it. But you, you do discuss in the book as well. And let's remind people, it's called Barry Sonnefeld, Call Your Mother. That's right. right? It's a Hachette book. Widely available wherever books are sold, and and an audio version too, right? That's right. The audio did you, version. I, you you had good. to have done the audio book. Yeah, I, mean, I did I, do. I, I I read my own. I didn't want to. I wanted Max Greenfield to do it for me, and Hashad said, "No, it should be your voice." Uh, so uh, I, I, you'll hear my voice for eleven hours. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned like Gordon Willis, for instance, um, one of the great cinematographers of the seventies, and uh, yeah. Uh, who directed a movie, which, by the way, because of your mentioning it, I didn't even know it existed. I thought I knew every movie out there. You know, having grown up in the 70s and to the 80s, I thought I was as knowledgeable as anybody else about it. Never heard of Windows. Windows, yeah. But watched it. And, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed it, but, you know, probably for all sorts of reasons beyond just the his directorial... His, it was his directorial debut and song <laughs> as it turns out. That's right. But it was... It's very watchable, but very, very, in that case, uh, sorry to go off book here, but very uh, literally, but uh, uh, <laughs> reminiscent, I'd say, of the films of, of De Palma and uh, Coppola, of course. Yeah, Makes yeah, sense that you yeah. would have been very, very influenced by their types of movies because it, it does watch like one of their movies. Yeah, it I does. Think. Or like, uh, in a way, almost uh, an unenergetic Scorsese movie also. Yeah, I guess uh, a you little could say bit. That. Closest to me for De Palma, but I don't want to... I don't want right. me to get into the weeds with Barry Sonnefeld. <laughs> 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 yeah. About that. You know. Maybe in, in the indie world, it's not as unusual. But I think back then, it wasn't typical, right? Is what yeah. you were trying to uh, make a point that to transition from cinematographer to filmmaker, director. Right. So what I did is I looked at all the other cinematographers who had become directors. Willis did Windows. Bill Fraker, who had shot, you know, uh, uh, all these amazing movies uh, did Legend of the Lone Ranger, his only feature. John Alonzo, who shot, you know, Farewell, My Lovely in Chinatown, amazing movies, did one movie called FM. And none of them made it as a director. So I looked at, I said, what did they all do that was wrong? And I think what they all did is they all took their camera operator and made them the DP which meant they didn't really want to give up the camera because they oh. could still tell their camera operator, no, put that light there. And, and so what I decided was I needed a cameraman so good that I would be forced to work with the actors because I couldn't be saying to, you know, I hired Owen Roisman who shot Tootsie. Red or blue. 
Yeah, yeah red gotcha. or blue, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I hired uh, Owen Roisman, who shot Tootsie and the you know all the uh, French Connection movies, so that he was so good that I was forced to work with the actors. And I think that Willis and Fraker and Alonzo probably didn't want to do that and wanted to stay with the camera. And so that was my way of forcing me to work That's with the really actors. Incredible. Incredible. What a, what, I think you just have a knack. This may be your biggest talent in a way, is just sort of knowing yourself uh, and your foibles, well, your tendencies, because then you can avoid them. If you don't know them, then you can't avoid them. Oh, I know them. I know every one of my foibles. <laughs> because your mother <laughs> pointed them out all the time. <laughs> uh, well, and truthfully, or, it goes back to what I was saying about hire people better than you are. I, ha I hired Dee Dee Allen, the greatest editor ever, to edit Adam's Family. I hired Owen Roisman, a much better cameraman than I was. I'm going to get all... I had Ken Adam. Oh, no, no, that was on the second one. The first one I had uh, Richard, what was his last name, uh, who was a production designer, brilliant. And then on the second one, Ken Adam, who did my favorite movie ever, which is uh, Dr. Strangelove. Uh, oh he gosh. did the production design on Strange Love and was so always hire people better than you are because you'll get the credit. Right. And I never understand those guys that are so insecure that they want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to be the dumbest person in the room. I get that. But I think in uh, some cases, uh, perhaps it's just they don't anticipate that that's the way they're going to go or. Or they're, they're going to shoot themselves in the foot by going that way. Like they figure, well, I'm, I'm a famous cinematographer. I've had a string of Oscar-winning successes. I know how to shoot a film as well as, you know, I feel like I can direct. I think I, I'm just I'm trying to come up with rationales why these mistakes were made, but you were able to kind of figure your way out. I think that. you're lovely, but I think the reason was that they were scared and didn't want to leave the, thing, the place where they felt comfortable. But you're a lovely okay. person to say that. Thank you. <laughs> All right, well, we'll leave it at that because I like the compliment. And ah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Uh, I want to respect your time. I think we're right around the, the agreed time frame here. Can you do me a little favor, though? Yeah. And that is, uh, once in a while, at the beginning of the podcast, I, you know, I have somebody just sort of introduce it or say an ID type of thing. Yeah. So I'm getting, I don't know if you, can you hear those pings when I get them? I don't know if you can hear no, them. No, no. Oh, good. Oh, good. Because I'm getting uh, texts and stuff. Uh, no. Like, the name of this podcast is Film Wax Radio. Film Wax Radio. But so, why? Uh, why? Why? Yeah. Oh, so what I just would do is like every so often I'll just put at the beginning of the show. No, uh, no, no. Why, why is it called Film Wax Radio? Oh, why is it called Film Wax Radio? <laughs> Not why do I do a I'm like, well, no, you, no, surely no, you know what I'm talking about. No, no, I didn't I'll do whatever this. you want. I just want to know why you're... Because your name isn't Waxman or anything. I, I, so it why? certainly is not. No, it's not. All right. Well, it's a fair question. Honestly, it just popped into my head. There's no other reason for it. I just thought film wax. I like the way the M went into the W when you said the word. It just sounded funny. There's an X in it, which is always good when you're uh, certainly when right. you're making a porn movie. But sure, I just <laughs> it just sound anything with an X is kind of funny sounding. So. I just kept it, and everybody immediately remembers the name. Everybody immediately got behind it. I quickly got a lot of uh, very, a lot of great support, and the radio part was just because I I like that old timey sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the word radio in it. Okay, now that I know that, what would you like me to say? 
Oh, anything. Like, how about something along the lines of this is Barry Sonnenfeld, author of and uh, Barry yeah, Sonnenfeld, yeah. Call Your Mother. And, and you're listening you know, to? Film Wax Radio, yeah. All right. Uh, and you'll, you'll direct me if you think I'm talking too fast or anything like that. Okay. Uh, yes. Hi, this is Barry Sonnenfeld, the author of Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, as well as a cinematographer, producer, director, and you're listening to Film Wax Radio with Adam Shartoff. Perfect. Thank you. And interestingly, so it's it's you pronounce your name Sonnenfeld. Right? I do. Others say Sonnenfeld, or but I say Sonnenfeld. What can I tell you? I always say it's the way your mother pronounced it, which is correct. But in your case, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure either. <laughs> you never know what my mother. Because I get a lot of people, you know, a lot of filmmakers or actors or whomever, and they might have uh, really ethnic names, like or you know, foreign names mm-hmm. or what have you. Like uh, um, even my name, like you struggled, and I will say, is it? Uh, Sonnefeld or Sonnefeld, and they'll say either one. Right. They've learned to just sort of like go with it because it's always so mispronounced. But I'm like, I want to get it exactly. I want to get it right. You know, I want to say it the way your your mother says it. That's usually the way I. Although I will tell you that all my life, I begged my parents to tell me I was adopted, and they refused to. But I, that that would make me happy if somehow I found out I was adopted and I had no relationship to them at all. But that's even today. Even today, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you want to find out exactly where this is rooted, this sort of, uh, I don't know uh, how to describe your feelings for your parents, but they're Jewish. <laughs> comes from, I don't know. I don't know. Read uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. Well, thanks, uh, Adam. And I'm going to send you this uh, email as soon as we get off the phone. Okay. Thank you so much. A pleasure, really. Adam. Thanks so much. <laughs>